what are employees looking for? What is the company looking for? What is the closest that we can get to a win-win? And yes, sometimes it does require us to be a double agent. Hello, everyone. I am David Murray. Welcome to Break the Wheel. I am here today with Julia Sitos, who is people and programs with no level and no other details because that is, I actually really like that, the, the, the non-title title that you have chosen collectively with the group. And you are from Alfred. Uh, and Alfred is a market-leading technology platform for residential managed housing with a resident-centric and technology-first approach, which I love because Technology first folks are exactly who we love to have on the show. So welcome, Julia. Thank you so much, David. I'm excited to be here. And, uh, you know, we like to always start with a little bit of uncork and unwind. So today's wine is from Italy. And speaking of Italy, employers there need to provide a justified reason for dismissal. And if the termination is found to be unjust, the employer may be required to reinstate the employee or provide compensation. This practice, as they say, encourages organizations to invest in employee development and resolve issues through dialogue and negotiation rather than resorting to terminations. But what do you think of that? I'm actually super familiar with this practice because I spent two years of my career working in Latin America where that is also the case. It is extremely difficult to let go of an employee for any reason, and you actually have to go to court in order to let someone go. When someone takes a job, they're assuming that they will be there forever. So I don't know, but I've worked through it and there is something to be said about trying to work it out. That's fascinating. You know, we have a lot of folks both at Confirm and at my, my last role at doctor.com from Argentina. And it was like for every year that you're at the company, you had to like pay like a month of salary to cover for it or something. So the longer that somebody was at a company, yes. the harder and scarier it was to let them go, right? Yes, absolutely. And our friends in Canada as well have similar provisions. It's fascinating because it makes me wonder if sometimes people may be incentivized to do things to try and get themselves fired as opposed to quitting because they might be able to get a little bit more money out of it, you know? Maybe, especially if they're ready to move on, but we'd, we'd like to hope not. We'd like to hope not. Well, fair enough. Well, welcome on the show. It's exciting to have you here. We're definitely, I'm excited to dive into like your world and your perspective. I know when we talked like kind of pre-show, there were some really, really interesting things that you shared, this really cool triangle thing. Anyways, like I won't spoil anything, but first we're gonna start with a HR news flash. So a study from FlexJob says about 73% of Gen Z workers feel more optimistic about their career prospects now than at this time last year, as compared to 43% of millennials and 31% of Gen X workers, according to a report from a few weeks ago from FlexJobs. So, however, workers across all three generations reported similar workplace struggles and challenges, not a surprise, including excessive work and a lack of clarity around their job roles and expectations. Any thoughts from you on what comes up when you hear any of that? So many thoughts. I mean, I feel like the reason why potentially our Gen Zers are more optimistic is because they are going out there and they are crafting their own thing. And it may not be traditional employment. And when they think of career, it's not necessarily tied to one job or one career path. And that generally is, you know, making them more happy, do what you love. 
When it comes to everybody else, I think it's just a little bit of function of the market. Companies are shifting and pivoting and doing what they have to do to survive some pretty difficult times. And that often has an impact on how employees grow in their current companies in their career. So I think there's a lot of uncertainty out there and it's hard to navigate. Totally. And it resonates with me. You know, we literally just hired somebody new uh, who's Gen Z actually only a couple days ago. And he is like asking uh, like the, the perfect questions that tell me that he's trying to understand the why, why? behind what he's doing. Mm-hmm. And I actually went to um, a restaurant of a friend who was setting up a new restaurant and hired a, a bunch of Gen Z workers there. And he said he was he just kept hearing from them. Why, 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 why? With like everything that he said, like you do this, you do that, you do that. And uh he didn't have as much energy to explain it to them, but it's clear that as a generation, Gen Z is really interested in understanding like the meaning and the purpose and the point of all the stuff that they do at work. Absolutely. I love that. All right. Well, bringing into this next segment, reality check. This is our guest spotlight. So Julia would love to hear the stuff that's on your mind in the world today, in your role, things that you want to share with this audience that might be useful words of wisdom. Feel free to share what comes up for you. You know, I have so much on my mind, everything from tech tools to four day work weeks to return to office. And I mean, it's also budget season. So what are we going to try to get going for next year? It's just so many things. What would you like to talk about, David? You know, honestly, the one that's really relevant to me right now, as it relates to what's been been hot recently, and there's a lot of controversy about it, is return to office specifically, and like remote work related to that. In that, um, so uh, Professor Nick Bloom, who's like fantastic Stanford professor, like shares a bunch of stuff online. He's kind of like the the go to person on return to office. He actually shared, um, I reshared this on LinkedIn recently, that there are a lot of these articles coming out about like return to office is is you know, like remote work is dead, work from home is dead and all this stuff. And like, he was sharing that, like, no, like the data actually shows work from home is here to stay. And it's interesting to see how polarizing this topic is. So I'm curious to get your wisdom on this topic. I am going to give you a radical idea for this. Remote work works for certain people, and it's super interesting. And I think we've all enjoyed the benefits of hybrid um, over the past few years, for sure. And there's this topic of the four-day work week. However, to make a four-day work week work, you actually have to be in office. And there's been some really interesting studies in Europe that have shown that employees would be willing to come into the office four days a week if they could have a four-day work week. So hmm. this is this is kind of what I'm thinking about. What if you're currently a company that's going in, let's say two days a week, and you want to get to three? How would you feel about giving a four-day work week in exchange for more in-office time? Wow. I have never heard anybody posit that before, but it makes a lot of sense that there's a transparency in this trade-off and in this like really cool benefit that, you know, the U S is kind of like a few companies you see that are adopting it, but I hadn't really compared these two things or used these two things together. I think that that is fascinating. And, um, I'm curious, like, is this something that you've tested the waters with, like in terms of, or is it just like pie in the sky? You're kind of thinking about it. I'm like, Oh no, are we going to, 
Is everyone at Alfred going to be like, oh my gosh, what is she going to say? <laughs> you know, I teased it out to a few people to see if they would be willing to come into the office to have a four-day work week. And everyone was like, oh, absolutely. Yes. I'm in. I'm here for it. I would do anything for the four-day work week. So in that way, I think it would be very popular. Um, I was really inspired by a talk that I went to a few weeks back and had heard some of these studies as well as a nonprofit that had implemented the uh, four-day work week. Uh, they said if you want to implement it, the first step is you have to read Essentialism, which I'm almost completed reading. And yes, absolutely. Uh, there's a lot you have to do to make it happen. But I I think it has some momentum. And, and in some ways, it's a win-win. It doesn't take care of the folks that are fully remote, don't live in locations where they could potentially commute in. But for them, like they may prefer that. And if they're remote, maybe they always were remote, then perhaps that continues. So then if that's the case, is the idea that those who work in the office have the four-day work week and then the remote people end up working on that fifth day? No, David. I would always <laughs> make it available for everyone. You can't do it that way. So four-day work week for everybody, but getting the folks in office that are located close enough to make it in. That's fair. And so you kind of optimize or maximize the folks that are there and you still get that benefit, but everybody ultimately still gets that four-day work week. That's I mean, hey, I hear that reasonable person principle. It's hard for me to imagine a lot of people objecting to, to something like that. I can imagine I'd probably be one of those people maybe angling for like, I want to be that remote worker exception to the rule. But <laughs> I'm guessing if, if somebody's already remote is where you're thinking about this kind of thing, right? Yeah. I mean, if it's mainly the four-day work week coming into the office trade-off is for people that can make it into the office. You also have the investment you've already made in, in that space and remote folks stay remote. Maybe they always were. Totally makes sense. It's It's been interesting to see the clap back clash anger or whatever you call it from all of the folks who feel really resentful about coming back into the office. And I haven't heard a lot of conversations in the space about folks, for lack of better words, sweetening the pot when they're asking for that. Usually it's just this one way deal of like, sorry, pure negative. You now need to come back. There's nothing good coming, but just you having to come back. And then they try and position it as positive. Like, oh, you get to connect, right? My, I'm totally outing my partner here, but I'm going to, well, I'm just going to say, well, I'll say um, there are some people that I know who did not have to go into the office and now have a certain requirement for the amount of times they have to go back into the office and now potentially try to make it so that the days that they go in are the days when other people are not going to be there so that they can still have, you know, their own private experience in the office, but adhere to the company policy. So like, I mean, when you get this like letter of the law, you have to do X, Y, Z, you're going to get those creative people that are gonna do whatever they need so that they're following the letter of the law but avoiding the spirit of the law so that they can optimize for themselves, right? I mean, yeah, and and to be honest, the programs that I'm seeing aren't necessarily that productive. Just saying you have to be in the office an average of three days, literally to me, zero sense. Saying we're gonna to work together in the office on these days, okay, like I get it, at least we're coming together, we're being intentional. Absolutely. The intentionality between, between like showing up and actually working together and calling that out in your policy. It's like a, a no brainer in, in hindsight. Absolutely. Fascinating. Well, transitioning a little bit, you know, we're talking a little bit about your perspectives on, on uh, remote work and four day work week. I'm curious when you think about what people may misunderstand, you know, people misunderstand what about your job, about your space or something that you see 
often every day that you think that people misunderstand? I, I'd love your perspective on that. You know, I, I do think the HR people profession has generally, um, it's, it's improved a lot. It's, it's now a sexy job. People are interested. Employee experience is a real thing. So I think there has been a lot of progression. Um, that said, I'll say people still misunderstand things. My favorite is probably that HR manages payroll. Uh, we do typically do not. It's typically a part of the finance function. So when things go awry from a payroll perspective, um, although people may reach out to me, I have to kind of educate them on, actually, that, that's not me. In a similar vein, some people think, you know, HR's job is just to enforce our employee handbook or rules and compliance and those sorts of things, when actually that is probably the smallest percentage of the work that we do. That's fascinating. What it brings up for me is um, as somebody that's in HR TikTok, as I'm maybe maybe you are as well, I don't know, but um, like consuming the content that's there, I see this um, HR is not your friend. HR is not your friend talking about, right, the, you know, the, the alliances with the company as opposed to with the employee, et cetera. And that sometimes clashes with the priorities from like a people experience standpoint. I'm kind of curious, like, what's your perspective on that? And what do you think that people misunderstand about that? Um, well, it, it's actually funny that you say this. And it is the main reason I think that I stayed in HR. HR didn't choose me uh, or I didn't choose HR. HR chose me. And it's because our job is really to find the win-win. So what are employees looking for? What is the company looking for? What is the closest that we can get to a win-win? And yes, sometimes it does require us to be a double agent. We are advocating for the employee. We are advocating for what we're trying to achieve as a company. But I would say HR is absolutely your friend. We're friends. I love that. You know, there's um, this book, Principles by Ray Dalio, that uh, is fantastic, just general book for life and for, you know, for work, how to think about principles and forming principles for yourself. One of the lessons that what you shared inspires me about is this idea that when you're negotiating, you know, and there's like one side and another, or when there's options, then you need to make a choice where it's option A or option B. What Ray Dalio says is pick the option that is not visible. Mm-hmm. Like, it, right? There's if, if you're presented with option A and option B, like with real humans, there's virtually 100% of the time unspoken option C, D, E, F that sits in the middle that even if both sides present that there really is no option but what they're sharing, that you'll be able to find something in the middle. So I I like that idea of, of like a covert double agent because um, it's easy to dehumanize, you know, oh, you're, you know, you're, you're in HR, like your priority is the company, but sometimes people forget that we are humans and we actually want meaning and purpose in our job. And we're, we're doing this for a living because we actually care about making a difference in people's lives. And we actually want the best, not just for the company, but also for the people themselves. And without the people, you don't have a company, right? So People are the most important resource that you have. So in that way, you have to take care of them and you have to find the win-win. Absolutely. I love this. Well, speaking of remote work, remote work work tools and all of that, we're moving into the segment called Break the Wheel or Break a Heel. So the topic actually is remote work tools and strategies. So 
I'm gonna go through each of these with you and you're gonna tell me break the wheel, this is innovative and awesome, or break a heel. If you've ever been there, you know what that's like. So starting with the first one, mandated return to office. Ooh, needs an asterisk, but I'd say generally break a heel. There you go. All right, virtual reality or VR onboarding. Right now, break a heel. The barrier of the equipment you need to make it happen is just too much. There are absolutely other alternatives, but putting on that VR headset to make it happen is not it. Maybe it's like 5, 10, 15, 20 years too early. I don't know. We keep saying like the metaverse is dead, I but mean, then there's like cool. another one. Yeah, it's cool, it's right? Cool, but you, there are ways to leverage the metaverse without VR equipment. And that is a very under resource under looked into technology 100 percent. i'm <laughs> as somebody probably like many of you listening who, who bought a vr headset to be able to exercise from home during the pandemic and like haven't touched it since you are not alone <laughs> and yeah it's like we all the idea is cool but yeah i agree with you all right next ai driven mental health apps for remote workers break the wheel I love AI. I'm so into it. Um, I've learned so much about it. We have an official program at Alfred where we're trying to really get our team up to speed on all the different things you can do with AI. It's truly fascinating. I do think you have to be careful in the mental health space because there is a lot of protected and confidential information. But I see leaders and taking this on and I think it's got legs. Love it. We had a whole uh, episode with Kyle Lagunas on AI and HR. And, you know, one of the things that came up was people are super like careful and tiptoeing into the space. But it's like uh, when I talk, even though like all of the messaging out there is like be very, very careful. When I talk to HR leaders, like they're eager to adopt AI. Obviously, there's the sensitivity about bias and like making sure that you're not giving away, you know, protected information to, you know, some third party platform. But like the benefits can be so huge, especially if you have attention to that bias side, you know? Absolutely. Love it. All right. Next digital co-working spaces. Tell me more. What do you mean by this one? <laughs> well, it's a little bit eye of the beholder, I'd say, but, um, have you had any, I'll tell you, I've had experience with digital co-working spaces like around it's like it's kind of like you know you have these boxes for like chat rooms that people are in that are video ah, chat rooms okay but then there's also like digital co-working spaces where you have these little avatars that like walk around and like little physical <laughs> office spaces and stuff and as you get closer like their video appears and stuff um so th those okay. are just two examples but right. i don't know if you've experienced any i others. mean i actually have used uh one of those tools that you're talking about the ones that i've seen were were almost like a Nintendo, like old school video game. So let's just say the quality yep. wasn't quite there, which basically took away from the whole experience. So I would probably say for now it's break a heel. And maybe if those digital co-working spaces get together with the virtual reality folks, we may be able to figure out something in the next few years. Do you think that either of those are even like necessary in terms of like just being able to get the job done virtually? Or you think maybe this is just like overkill, like we're good right now. I mean, here's what I like about it. Zoom fatigue is real. If you yeah. can participate live, but not have to, you know, be on camera, there's just something so relieving about that. So of all the things, that's what I appreciate about it.
Agreed. As I know, you and I had to get prepared for this podcast right now and we chose to like have a little video and I'm sure that both of us were like, what am I going to wear this morning? And you have to smile and look good. And oh my gosh, yeah, eight hours a day or 10 or 12 or whatever. Exhausting. All right. Last one, uh, four day work week for remote work. I mean, you know where I stand on this one. This is a break the wheel. We got to make it happen. Other countries are doing it. We can do it better. And my view is, I don't think people are working on Friday. I just don't want to <laughs> Like, I, I think that they're like, they're already offline. So if they're already offline, let's take credit for that. If you didn't hear all, she's saying, I don't think people are working on Friday. So, you know, I mean, I'll be honest. Should I be honest? I'll be honest. Yeah. I, fr so Friday, I have all of my one-on-one -on -one meetings with like my team members back to back to back to back to back to back to back, just to make sure that I have them and like, you know, keep them going. And then by the end of the day, I'm so exhausted and like, that is the day where you're like, well, it's one, you know, especially if you're on the East coast, right? You're like, well, it's one, but it's like four on the, on the East coast right now, you know, if you're Pacific and, and, uh, you're like, yeah, like things are ramping down. And so it's like a, maybe a half day for some. So I feel you there. Yeah. Awesome. Well, a great job. We have some breaking wheels, but it sounds like we got a lot of breaking heels. So remote work. Watch those heels. All right, moving on, we got the wheel breaker of the week. And I will just say as an aside, um, I never would have expected that I would have called this company a wheel breaker ever. Um, in fact, I'm like, oh my gosh, are people gonna turn off the podcast right now when they hear this? But um, I'm gonna give credit where credit is due. So, <laughs> drum roll, Walmart, <laughs> they scrapped their degree requirements for some of their corporate jobs. This move reflects a broader focus on skills among employers nationwide as a pro opposed to just degrees. I'm curious, Julia, what do you think about that? Well, David, I did this back in uh, 2019. So, yes. Uh, <laughs> You're like, welcome to the team. You should have done it longer ago, right? I mean, I'm, I'm happy to see that Walmart is doing it. I mean, generally, the reason why you do this is because it does remove barriers. It does open up people from different backgrounds and lived experiences to apply for roles. Absolutely the right thing to do. I think it's a great move. I'd like to see more companies take it on and keep like moving that education section in the resume down, da, 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 down. Like it really doesn't matter. Um, there are exceptions to that, of course. I want my lawyer to have a JD. Like this is factually true. Um, Wait, but, what about Kim Kardashian? I mean, she could be a really good lawyer. I don't think she has one, right? Uh, no comment. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. You don't have to comment on celebrities. It's fine. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, I, I like it. I think more companies should do it. Absolutely. When I see that in the very top line of a requirement section, I immediately think this is super old school. Like they don't have someone who actually understands the impact that that causes. Absolutely. Well, I'm totally down with that. And I think it's another thing, like, especially like Gen Zers and beyond who absolutely cannot afford it and not in any fantasy land could they ever reasonably afford it. Like, some of you are geniuses and actually, even if you're not right, you don't have to be a genius to be a great worker. Some of you are great workers and you don't need that. So yeah, kudos to you. Probably the only time in my life that I will ever say kudos to you, Walmart. Um, I'm more of a Target person myself, as long as I don't have to, you know, call the security person to get out the freaking speed stick. But um, <laughs> other than that, I would say kudos to you, Walmart, and glad to see this happening at more and more larger organizations. 
With that, we're moving on to Wisdom on the Rocks. So this one, I didn't prep you for this one, Julia, but you had shared with me when we were chatting uh, earlier, this like triangle that you had from this, this presentation. And I thought it was fascinating. And I'm wondering if you can describe it to us via audio. And, and for those who are watching via video, if you want to screen share to, you're welcome to, or just describe it. But some wisdom, I think, that this audience could uh, learn from you. So the triangle that David is referring to is the employee hierarchy of needs versus the people ops approach. So the base, the fattest part of the triangle. Someone once told me, someone very wise said, the last thing I want is for my employees to be coming to work and the only thing or the most important thing they're thinking about is, am I getting paid enough? So for that reason, the base is compensation. We got to figure that out. That can't be a distraction. We got to get focused, make sure that it is where we want it to be. Now, from a people ops perspective, there's a couple things that go with that. We've got compliance, risk management, pay equity, the benefits piece. When we think about compensation, definitely total compensation. Having a clear policy, and most importantly, being consistent. So that's compensation. Love it. Next up. Keep going. I mean, yeah, let's see this whole, the whole. Yeah. <laughs> Next up, it's trust. I mean, trust. To me, when it comes to, to being a people professional, this is just the most impactful thing you can do. And how you develop trust, show trust for the employees that you're supporting, responsiveness. My, you know, I've managed teams as large as 30 people, and then they knew that the worst thing that could ever happen is someone reaches out to me and says that they weren't being responsive. So responsiveness, communications, transparency. I put DEIB in this bucket and then just health and safety. How are people feeling? Mm. Trust. Mm. Next one, and this one's a little bit of a, a shout out to my alma mater, uh, WeWork. Uh, we got community and connection. So this is where the culture comes in, uh, creating that sense of belonging, camaraderie, are we aligned on our common goals? Do we understand our mission? And, and similar to how you said uh, earlier when we were talking, do people understand how the work that they're doing ladders up to that mission, the impact that they individually have towards that? Nice. Next, nice. mastery. So this is learning, training, development, career pathing, mentoring, recognition. Um, and the reason why I like this triangle, just to pause for a second, is because a lot of times we jump to the shiny new thing or the thing that everybody's talking about. And maybe that's career pathing right now. If you're so far down the path on career pathing, but then you're not communicating, you're not responsive, you've messed up people's pay, it really doesn't matter. So that's why the triangle. And then last is just fulfillment. Do team members have autonomy in their roles? Are their values aligned with your values? Are you offering up individualization in all the places that you can? Is there choice? Is there a shared purpose? And are people achieving their full potential in their current role? I love this. And, you know, I, I'm guessing inspired by Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I'm just, just guessing. I think yes. And 15 years of, you know, doing it the wrong way, hearing what people were saying, yeah. reading tens of engagement surveys, always coming back to the same feedback on the things you have to get right before people can even start to consider the things that you want to do. Absolutely. Well, the, I mean, the, the high level concept of like, you need to like master this lower part of the period uh, pyramid before you can go up to the next part of the pyramid and up and up the, the chain is a really 
I think a fundamental shift in how one might think about um, people programs and just like employee satisfaction in general, because as you, to your point, it's really easy to look at the new shiny thing. There's so many different new tools, technologies, like things that your CEO really wants. And it's really easy to run after those things and kind of make your goal be making whoever happy. But if you have that fundamental set of building blocks to inform how you're doing, you kind of have this way of, of maybe making sure that you're doing all the things that people don't talk about, but you know that they need. Yes. That, that's, that. that's absolutely right. And I think if, you know, if you're in the market for maybe your first people hire or head of people or something like that, ensuring that you're setting up yourself and that person for success, understanding what they bring and don't bring, and then complementing it with external support as you can. Um, they may be stellar in one area, but if they can't set that foundation so you don't run into issues later, it, it will come back to haunt you for sure. I think it's so wise and very cool. And I hope that like, I don't know, you publish a website or something for us so that we can go and like see it and discover it um, because I think it's it's genius. And thank you for those wonderful wisdom on the rocks. So got it. with that, I'm, I'm drinking to that. Even though I have no rocks in this glass, I'm drinking to that. Yes, I'm, I actually have Olipop ginger lemon. It's absolutely fantastic. Highly recommend it. Love that Olipop. Well, I hope they're paying you for the, for the, for the free advertising, but I, I love it. So many different, well... I know this isn't a drink show, but I'll say there have been a lot of different drinks being released in the last year or so that I'm like, okay, I'm all about that. So Olipop, there you go. All right. Next segment, this one, it's a silly one. And actually it relates a little bit to, to drinks because it's related to food. Uh, this is the what should I have done segment. So this is my personal embarrassment where I describe to you something that I've done in the workplace in the past. And I get your opinion about what should I have done. So... Uh, this is a story, actually, um, one of many from my early days in 2006 to 2008 at, at Google. Uh, I was like a, you know, early new entry level grad, like product manager type person uh, on the Google campus in, in Mountain View and um, just got out of school, really obsessed with wanting to make people happy, work really hard, was totally overworked. And that was a time when, you know, like the the food at work was like a new novel thing and they wanted to like go above and beyond by offering like the fanciest stuff that you could possibly get and like all of the Reese's pieces and Reese's peanut butter cups and whatever delicious stuff was like sitting out everywhere all the time. And for somebody like me, who was just like work, 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 consume, consume, didn't know how to say no, I gained the, you know, the Google 20 or 30 or 40. I honestly, I lost track, but I can say that I, I gained a lot of weight and not at all body shaming. I love all body types, everybody be you. For me, I did not feel good about myself from all of the overeating I was doing. Cause I didn't feel good in my body. I had so much sugar, everything else. And since then, Google has since like hidden a lot of the, <laughs> the naughtier stuff behind counters. And I know a lot of other organizations are kind of doing the same thing so that people don't feel these temptations constantly where they might, if they're like me, like just don't know how to say no. And, you know, I never said anything to anybody about it there. I never gave any feedback. I never engaged. And part of it was me kind of saying like, like who am I as just like some entry level person uh, to comment about any of this. And ultimately I, I felt like, 
you know, it was my own personal self-control that I was like eating all of this stuff and didn't feel great in the end. And so, you know, when I, when I left, I later started a, a company around like accountability buddies for like weight loss and physical fitness goals and like addiction goals, because like I was struggling with all of those things. Um, but my question to you is going through all of that when I was there, what should I have done? I love this question, uh, David, and it's really funny because <laughs> I run our snack program at Alfred. And so every quarter I ask people to kind of ask, you know, ask me for what snacks they want. And I have seen that it trends to healthier snacks. So, I mean, this is what I always tell people. If you're, if you're thinking something or feeling something, there's a big chance, especially at a huge company, that there are many, many other people that maybe are feeling the same way as you. So just talking about it, bouncing it around, and then having or feeling the strength in numbers, and then just speaking up and saying like, hey, this is what I've noticed. This is how it's impacting me. Is there something we can do about it? And I have a feeling that what that would have probably been met with open arms and would have, any, if anything, been ahead of its time, and they would have made the change. Wise words of wisdom. I should have said something. I should have spoken up. And I love that you bring up, um, I guess I think of that as the, you know, the bystander effect, the bystander bias of thinking that other people are having the conversation that you want to have, but you're like, oh, I don't want to do this. Like a lot of times everyone else is thinking the same. And then sometimes nobody says anything and nobody's aware. And then everyone's kind of like, oh, they're still doing this thing and nobody's aware. So be the change. It sounds like I should have yes. been the change. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, time for horror story of the week. This is where I want to hear your real life HR horror story. It could have been happening to you or it could be something that you watched or observed. You can anonymize the company that it was at so that, you know, you can anonymize whatever you want, but give me the give me the tea. Let's hear a horror story. Man, this is tough. Uh, I don't know that I have any personal horror stories, uh, that I am thinking of. I will tell you the one that I, I continue to see. And I, I mean, I won't name companies, but I feel like for the past year and a half or so, there has been this trend of what I call the surprise and delight layoff. Wait, there's layoffs? What that means is you have no idea that there's an issue with company performance. You have no idea that your role potentially is at risk. And then you're presented with layoff details. Oftentimes, the reaction that I see on LinkedIn leads me to believe that this was, in fact, a surprise and delight. What's going wrong? How can this be changed? I think that there's an opportunity for transparency. And a lot of times startups have been championing this, but I'll tell you that the very first company I worked at, I thought did a fantastic job of this specifically. What they would do is they would tell employees where they stood from a calibration perspective. What quartile are you in? They would ask employees, are you willing to learn new skills? Are you willing to travel for work? Yes or no. And then depending on the answers to that questions, what quartile they were in, if business suffered in any way, shape or form, they knew that they were at risk and they could plan accordingly. And I just don't understand why the default is to surprise and delight. To me, it is absolutely a horror story. 
Yeah. And I'm, I'm like, where's the delight come from? Because I hear the surprise, but it's like su- surprise and demise more like, you know? I agree. I mean, it, it just makes zero sense to me. And even worse than that is when you're not seeing outplacement support for those folks. It's it's just too much all at once and a lack of responsibility and ownership in my view. That's wild. So actually, this is a great kind of place to surface a little bit about like performance management, performance management tools and like transparency. I mean, you know, I won't I won't go out and, and, and hide the fact that, that you use Confirm, but I am kind of curious if you were to share just like how you deliver that that transparency to, you know, the folks at your organization so that they know where they stand. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's an honest com- conversation. So we use Confirm. We do two performance cycles a year. We do O&A, uh, organizational network analysis, four times a year where you're getting feedback from across the company, across your network on how you're performing either as an all-star or as an influencer. And we also track our OKRs uh, in Confirm where you're seeing, are you or aren't you achieving your goals? So all of that complemented with our compensation cycles, you're getting all the signaling you need. We're encouraging managers to do one-to-ones every week. That feedback is also tracked in Confirm. And so you can go into Confirm and almost see Here's what my performance review says. Here's the feedback I'm getting from my network. Here's what my manager is telling me in my one-to-ones. How's it really going? How's it really going? It's great. You know, not every organization uh, shares the same perspectives on transparency with with their employees. And, you know, sometimes they just... They just have, you know, their, their manager rating and like no context from the rest of the organization. Or they have these, you know, peer 360s where people cherry pick the people that would say good things about them. So, you know, I'm, I'm grateful that you, um, both that you champion organizational network analysis as a tool and that you're leveraging, you know, confirm or really any tool, right? If you're, if you're getting folks to come back on an ongoing basis, as I know has been a big priority for you to use all aspects of the platform. So it's seen as value across the board. Um, you know, it's not something that everybody does, but, uh, I want to commend you for it because, uh, it's clear that you have a, a solid, solid uh, organization in terms of that hierarchy that you talked about. Like you're, at least from what I see, I think you're nailing it. Well, the thing about why I like Confirm and why we use it the way that we do is to me, it's an employee experience platform. A lot of performance tools, you're only going into once or twice a year as required, maybe three times if you have an annual engagement survey. To me, I want confirmed to be a destination. And that's why we chose it. The user interface is easy. It's clean. It's very understand, under, easy to understand what's going on. That's how we use it. And we're actually a company, I'm almost you know, shy to say it, we don't even have an HRIS. We literally use Confirm as our landing for our employees. Very cool. Well, I love that. And you're not the only organization to say that. I'll say like some folks, they'll buy a I don't know, something really bulky and they may find that they don't really use it or need it. And hey, you're your needs met. That's wonderful. So thank you. Wow. That transition from horror story to like uplifting story. So, so that's, that's good. Well, then let me bring it back down with the wobbly wheel of the week. So Tyson Hormel, they face a class action lawsuit over worker compensation. Executives there allegedly held secret meetings and off the books dinners to discuss worker pay rates supporting a plausible inference of a conspiracy to suppress wages. What do you think about that? Wow, that's incredible. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just thinking through the secret meetings and off the books. Um, 
uh, I'm, I'm, I just, I feel very underqualified to have any reaction uh, whatsoever. Um, <laughs> this is your opportunity to throw a lot of shade, but I think you're taking the high road. So good for you, Julia. No, I, I, I mean, I'm a big proponent of pay transparency. Um, I just, mm. I don't even understand where they were going with this directionally it's just super confusing i also just don't know if if tyson is or is not um a unionized environment and that definitely presents some unique challenges to this mm -hmm. this is one of the ones that i have to almost research to provide any sort of good view totally and that's that's fair that's a, a very political response i need to learn more before but <laughs> yeah we all got the same initial reaction but yes i think it is wise to say i need to research to really decide all right well all good um moving on water cooler whispers so if you want to share anything that you've heard on the rumor mill on the street that you know that you think this audience might find to be a little juicy mm, so many things the one that's coming to mind i haven't seen a lot of articles about it so it's either not true or maybe it's cutting edge but I'm hearing that for next year, people are putting more money into their learning and development budgets. And I think this is super interesting. And it may be related to the fact that we aren't growing our teams by a ton, potentially. We want to keep our, our stars um, going. And in order to do that, uh, we need to invest in the talent that we have. So that's my juicy, I'm looking into this, I'm going to see what's up, is I think learning is, is going to be a big investment for next year. Love that. And absolutely, like doubling down on the talent that you do have, especially if you just went through a riff or other, other type of downsizing, I think investing in your talent as much as you possibly can is, is very wise. So good water, water cooler whisper. So uh, this next segment, I always feel really like silly uh, saying it because it's one of those ones that like maybe down the road, I'm just going to kill it. But uh, it's called HR Speak Funny. And we talk about like some weird saying or thing that like people folks use and it's weird and unique and we kind of make fun of it a little. So this one is purple squirrel. So for those who aren't on the recruiting side in the recruiting industry, a purple squirrel is a candidate who's so perfect for a job that they almost are impossible to find. A purple squirrel has the right, maybe education, experience, qualifications, and culture. They also have exceptional qualities or niche skills that make them stand out from the other candidates. The term purple squirrel is often used when a company is looking for a needle in a haystack or that one perfect candidate to fill a role. First of all, who came up with purple squirrel? Like, why squirrel? Why purple? I mean, I have never heard this before. I call it a unicorn. Um, so the purple squirrel is new to me. But when I hear a hiring manager looking for, you know, over the moon and back, I call it a unicorn. I, you know, manage expectations. I, you know, make sure my talent team doesn't like lose their minds over it. But Purple squirrel, it's a new one. I'm going to have to check that one out. Okay, well, that's good to know because so I asked ChatGPT, can you give me a list? And see, this is helpful in terms of like, it's just give me a list of HR speak funny terms and it gave me purple squirrel. And I was like, I'd never heard of that before. I'm choosing it. I use unicorn as well to describe this, yes. in fact. But then I thought, well, maybe unicorn's a little misleading because especially in tech, you know, we have like unicorn companies. I know, that's, so what, I, that's what I'm thinking. Right? 
May, right? maybe, well, that's, that's immediately when I thought of when I thought, why do you need to say purple squirrel instead of unicorn? Maybe we have too many unicorns. Well, if in the audience, if you use purple squirrel, please chime in. Otherwise, this yes. would just be a ridiculous like chat GPT <laughs> came up with something nobody uses. So we'll like, have to uh, validate it with our audience. Yeah, they may have one more joke on you, actually. <laughs> actually, yeah, very well could have. All right. This last one is really juicy. It's declined to comment. So you are going to. Uh, decide if you want to answer each of these questions and you can decline to comment to one of them. I am going to ask you in order. So if you decline to comment on the first one, you will have to answer the second and the third one. So with that, I'm going to ask you this first question and you can again decline to comment if you'd like. Question number one, what did you hate most about your previous employer? Ooh. <laughs> Um, I am going to say bait and switch. I will answer this one. Um, you know, I think that at certain times, definitely in my career, the talent market has been so hot that when you meet someone amazing, you just want to hire them and you figure out what they're going to do later. But that only works really for you, right? It doesn't work for the other person. So I think uh, it's awesome to be in a position where you're building and you can hire a lot of really talented people, but you've got to be clear and manage expectations. So that way it's a win-win. Wow. You are brave, Julia. You are brave. Brene Brown would be proud. Okay. Number two, <laughs> which HR software platform do you think is most overrated? Ooh. You don't have to pick a confirmed competitor, by the way. Like I'm not, I'm not pushed. Like just, this is just your honest opinion, unbiased by me. Man, I'm going to decline to answer this one only because I have dear friends that work in every single HR platform you could imagine and know <laughs> sales professionals across all as well. I think that they all have their pros and cons and you just have to understand the trade-offs. I 100% agree with you. And, you know, like some some platforms, technologies and approaches just resonate for some folks and don't with others. But, you know, that's totally, totally fair. All right, then. Well, <laughs> number three, who, <laughs> who annoys you on LinkedIn, but you haven't told them yet? Oh, man. I'm going to maybe give a weird answer and you're going to probably tell me it's a cop out. Um, so who annoys me on LinkedIn is actually LinkedIn. The things that, that they may highlight as important that I just I'm not like seeing why um, I actually think they're their own worst enemy and, and they don't fully understand their end user in many cases. And I love LinkedIn. It is the only social media that I use. So just being particular. <laughs> We're saying we love you and that's why we want you to do a little better with your yes. algorithm. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that is exactly what I I'm saying. That. Love it. And hey, you're not alone in that. Well, with that, Julia, we're going to cheers to change this final segment. Just going to share with the group. We've heard a lot in the past few years about quiet quitters, but in our current era of doing more with less, a number of you have stepped up to become quiet contributors. The people who are doing amazing work, sometimes multiple people's jobs, but your manager might not see it. You know, we're excited to see tools, processes, and people that are putting into practice ways to give visibility and recognition to people like you. 
Surprisingly, research shows that the top 15% at most organizations are making about 50% of the organization's impact, also known as Price's Law, and management isn't always able to identify who these people are. Luckily, new tools are available to let you identify who these people are, and we celebrate the HR innovators who are willing and able to adopt these tools and put them into practice. So with that, cheers to those who are brave enough to adopt these new tools. Cheers to the quiet contributors. Julia, it was fantastic to chat with you. I love your your warmth, your humanity, and also like your knowledge. You dropped so many like knowledgeable truth bombs to this group. I think we have a lot to learn from you. So I want to thank you, Julia, for coming to break the wheel. Been a pleasure. I wish you a happy rest of your year. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning into another episode of the Break the Wheel podcast. Remember to subscribe and follow the podcast so you never miss an episode. Join us again for more insightful conversations.